Welcome to Ira's Everything Bagel, where I talk with intriguing people about everything, their passions, pursuits, and points of view. Are you a well-seasoned traveler? Do you think you've visited all the great spots in the world? More importantly, have you met interesting people in their own environment? Well, you may or may not have, but you'll learn about places and people you may not know from my guest, Tom Tarantino. He's an entrepreneur, private investor, and author, along with Barbara Scott, of Looking for Legends, whose subtitle reads in part, Let Us Take You Somewhere You've Never Been Before. Looking for Legends will be available in April on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and all the usual places. And for everything about Looking for Legends, look for their new website, lookingforlegends.com, coming up shortly. And Tom Tarantino, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I love your donuts or your Thank bagels. Yes, you know, bagels, exactly. A great background. Thank you. They they both have holes, but bagels are definitely different than uh, donuts. And probably healthier, too. What's Give us a little bit about your background. And I, I want to start close to home and travel with the Ghost Ranch. But give us a little bit of your background and why you decided to write this book along with Scott. Uh, we kind of fell into it. Um, we were sponsoring professional squash tournaments in Philadelphia as America was going from the hardball game to the softball game. And we found that the most grateful people were all the women players. So we talked to the head of the organization and said, let's sponsor something internationally. And so we would get the top women players in the world. They would fly into a young squash country like Kenya, uh, and they would play the top men, and they'd kill them. And it was a lot of fun. We went to a lot of places. Uh, we probably were shy. Um, but then we got braver and we learned how to travel. And then we started thinking of going to other places besides just squash countries. And one place led to another. Uh, we like to say that most of our best friends are dead because <laughs> we, we went to I very the dead people, but because of the reference that you make because of the book. <laughs> well, and and because they are dead, right? And we we went, for example, to Bangkok, and there is one person there who was a spy, but he was also an architect. Uh, a, a silk salesman, a, uh, a statue collector. And then one day in 1967, we, he went out for a walk and was never seen or heard again. So he's not necessarily dead. He's disappeared. <laughs> uh, yeah, but that was 50 years ago. I say so. Well, he could still be alive. You never know. That's that's very well. <laughs> so most uh, some of your best friends are missing or dead. Probably might be a better. That's, that's a that's a good line. Yes. Uh, Wait, we, can I can I go back? Wait a second, because you said something very interesting. You said that you learned how to travel after you went to this tournament. How did, did you? Why did? How and why did you learn to travel? Is there a certain way to travel that you became 
not as uncomfortable as you had initially for the squash tournament? Well, you, it's all about, I mean, the most, what's the most, the most difficult thing about traveling is getting on the plane and getting off the plane and when you do it and uh, how you do it, because sometimes you can go from A to B to C and it takes you less time than if you were going right from A to C. Or sometimes you, I guess my best travel story would be we flew from Philadelphia to Miami overnight to Buenos Aires, switched to the domestic airport, took a flight down to El Calafate, got a car, and arrived in El Shatan at the bottom of South America in 24 hours in time for dinner. Hmm. And so our, our idea of what was possible expanded. So, for example, here in Philadelphia, a lot of people will go to the Jersey Shore. If you go to the Jersey Shore and you stay for a week or two, you're spending and you're renting, you're spending ten to $20,000. Well, for that same amount of money, you can go on a once-in-a-lifetime safari to Kenya or to South Africa or to, uh, well, anywhere, anywhere, really. I mean, it's a, the 24-hour rule uh, is you can pretty much get from where you are right now to anywhere else in the world in 24 hours. And that expanded our horizons. It expanded our imagination. And, you know, once you started doing it and it worked, well, you could do it again. And that's what we did. And we did it for 25 years. And along the way, we ran into a lot of different people uh, again some alive, some dead. I'll give you an example of a person who's alive. Have you ever heard of the 14 8,000ers? No, I have not. They're the 14 tallest mountains in the world. And somebody was the first person declined them all, and his name was Reinhold Messner. Have you ever heard of the Seven Summits? I have not. They're the seven tallest mountains, one on each of the seven continents. Someone was the first person to climb them all. Well, he wasn't the first person to climb all seven, but... He was the first person to climb all seven and all 14. Hmm. Well, he lives in northern Italy in a place more fondly known as Sud South Tyrol. And he has created six mountaineering museums. And we came up with the idea. We went on a trip. We met him. Uh, people would say he was so crazy that he put handholds across his living room ceiling 
so he could climb across it upside down. He wasn't, <laughs> that, he wasn't that crazy. They were in his basement. But then because one of the museums was his summer residence, we went there and he told us how he came to buy the place. He saw that it was for sale, but he hired a straw buyer to represent him because he figured that if anybody knew that he wanted to buy the place, the price would just go up. Well, it turned out that the seller didn't want to sell to just another guy with money. He wanted to sell to a South Tyrolean. And he only wanted to sell to one South Tyrolean. Reinhold Mester. Mm -hmm. So it turned out to be a happy transaction. And it was happy for us. We saw the museums. We uh, you know, put our bags in the car and off we went for the next exciting adventure. What I like about your story is, and your book, is that you combine a sense of place and a sense of people. Well, here's why. Wherever we went, and we tried to go to the farthest out-of-the-way places, the farthest away places, and wherever we went, we found somebody who captured the spirit of the place. Uh, they should be worldwide household names, but outside of their location, uh, they're pretty much were never known or if they were known, were forgotten. Uh, for example, we went to St. Petersburg in Russia, and there we discovered a woman poet, Anna Akhmatova, who was a blazing star just before World War I, but then... When you had the war, when you had the Bolshevik uh, Revolution, when you had the Civil War, when you had the Great Terror, she was banned. And when I say banned, she wasn't even permitted to write poetry. So what she would do is she would get her friends, she would write a poem, they would memorize it. And then once they memorized it, she burned the poem. And she ended up outliving Stalin. She ended up being world famous. And there are a couple of statues of her in St. Petersburg. And her poems are great. And am I allowed to read you just one section? Uh, because it's what captured my attention. Sure. In the years of the Great Terror, I sent, spent 17 months in the prison lines. Once someone recognized me, a woman whispered in my ear, can you describe this? And I answered, yes, I can. Then something that looked like a smile passed over what had once been her face. Mm. So she was wonderful. Uh, 
Pablo Neruda. I'm sure you have you heard of Pablo Neruda? Yes. Well, he was a politician. He had wonderful houses. He had an interesting life. He escaped. He was banned as well. His houses are worth visiting. Here's another thing we learned about travel. You don't need to go someplace for two weeks. In fact, there were any number of trips we went on where we left on a Thursday night and flew back on a Monday. And we got as much of a break, as much of a different experience as we would have had if we'd been away for two weeks. Again, it's all in your imagination. So, you wanted to ask about the Ghost Ranch? I did. That was um, only because it was closer to home, meaning it's in the United States. And you talk about the Ghost Ranch and its history. I, I want to point out something you didn't mention yet, but I will, that there's wonderful illustrations and pictures in the book, as well as, obviously, the words. So you can get a sense of place and time and people as you go through it. And more importantly than the pictures, we have a whole lot of maps. Maps, and the maps absolutely. Tell you where you are, show you where to go. They, they make it real. They make it real. So, the Ghost Ranch. It's larger than the island of Manhattan. And during the 30s, a Princeton millionaire, got to give a little shout out to Princeton, uh, went there. Don't blame it against me. I was only <laughs> one of 82 high school basketball captains in my class. That's how I met Barbara. She was a a girls' school's basketball coach. The game was changing, and she needed an assistant. I, I met her through my older brother, and when I graduated from college, I told her, I hope I can find somebody just like you. And 13 years later, I did. <laughs> so... Back That's a great story. Ranch. Back to the ghost ranch. So this millionaire held it, not as a dude ranch, but as a place of reserve and contemplation. And one of his first clients was George O'Keefe. And one of his second clients were all the atomic bomb scientists whose headquarters 
or 30 miles away. One of his next clients was a ground scientist, an archaeologist, and he came and found the greatest find of one particular kind of dinosaur ever found in the United States. And then, as he was getting older, he sold it to the church, the Presbyterians, and they still operate it, again, for wilderness retreats. But the place has also become a very famous movie lot. So if you remember City Slickers, it was filmed on the Ghost Ranch. There are not many places where you can go where there's nowhere there. Another place that we went to that was a nowhere place was Khaled Hungi in northern central India. And it was there that a young man named Jim Corbett came of age and became the most famous man-eating tiger hunter in history. Killed more than 12 of them. He learned the language. His last kill was probably the most spectacular. He had learned how to imitate the seduction call of the tigers. And the one tiger that he was hunting, he made the call, the mating call, and ended up killing the tiger seven feet from where he stood. Mm. Are we tiger hunters? No. Are we mountain climbers? No. We're lookers. And if you look carefully enough, you'll see things that aren't even there. For example, we went to Luxor, and it's in Egypt. It's where all these various temples, the Temple of Luxor, the Temple of Karnak, it's where all these obelisks are. And it's where we learn there was a Frenchman, Jean-Francois Champollion, who, after almost 2,000 years, translated the hieroglyphs. And he was so well known that he also discovered the Valley of the Kings, 
where there are all these tombs. And one day the king of France asked him, if we were to get an obelisk from Luxor, which one would we get? He picked it out for him. And in 1836, it was mounted in the Place de la Concorde in central Paris. Now, it's one thing to think about central Paris, but when you're in Luxor, there's so much that surrounds you that you miss what's not there. And the fact that Champollion was so instrumental in moving what's not there. Question, how long did it take you to, the two of you, to write the book? Well, not just write the book, you put the maps together, the illustrations, pictures, etc. How long did it take you to put all that together? Because you're in a sense, reliving your experiences and writing about them. You may have obviously taken notes during each trip, but how long did it take you to well, find it? We weren't reliving the experiences as much as we were planning the experiences. Because once it dawned on us that this was a way to travel, to travel with the purpose, to look for the people as much as the places, well, I don't care how great a vacation is, how great a trip is. What's the longest trip you've ever been on? I'd say two weeks. Right. And how long did you spend preparing for it? A while. <laughs> a while. Because of all the logistics, usually, and also some research, obviously, you want to know what you're doing and where you're going. Because some some trips by people are for pleasure. Some are for a mix of pleasure and business, some pleasure business, but also experiences, meeting people and really delving into a culture. Depends on, on the specific vacation or travel. But what we would do is we would spend six months researching the trip and it became more fun than going on the trip itself well it made it more efficient too didn't it you knew exactly what you were looking for and who you wanted to meet with some surprises along the way of course that's part of travel and Ah, here's one. We have a chapter, El Shatan, in Patagonia. And the story there is two California self-described beach bums <laughs> decided that they would get in their van, drive down to the bottom of South America, 
and climb a mountain that had only been climbed twice before. One of them was a guy by the name of Yvonne Chenard. He had such a wonderful time that driving back, he turned to his best friend and said, you know, I think I'm going to create a clothing company and I'm going to name it after where we just were. Patagonia. And his friend, Doug Tompkins, said, well, you know, I like this outdoor stuff too. And I've already founded a clothing company and I named it after the hardest side of a mountain to climb. And the name of that is? North Face. So there you had two guys who didn't have any plans, but all of a sudden created two fantastic businesses dealing with the outside life. One of them sold his business and used the proceeds to buy millions and millions and millions of acres in South America and create huge national parks. And the other worked his business and used his income to fight for environmental causes, to sell lots of self-sustaining clothing, and in the end, to give his company to a trust that now all the profits of Patagonia go to environmental causes. Who would have thought that would have happened? Now, it wasn't us. And I guess... Well, it wasn't you, but you learned about it because right. of your research. So that's it. One last story. A boat. There's a boat by the name of the Fram used by Norwegians to go the closest to the North Pole and the closest to the South Pole. And when its sailing days were over, Norway built a museum just for the boat. Nice. All right, all, all yours. Well, before I let you go, are you planning any more trips? Unfortunately, my wife is 92, and she's gotten tired. And I just don't want to go anywhere without her. Wouldn't be understood. any fun. Yeah, no, I understood totally. Well, you've you've had a wonderful travel career, both of you. So that's outstanding. And it's a great way to leave it. My guest has been Tom Tarantino. He's an entrepreneur, private investor. And he's author, along with Barbara Scott, of Looking for Legends, which will be available in April on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and all the usual places. And for everything about the book, 
They'll be getting that website pretty soon called lookingforlegends.com. And Tom, thanks for being on the show. Thank you for having me. And join us every Thursday for a new schmear on Ira's Everything Bagel.